Welcome to the Brand Spanking You podcast with host Nicole Montgomery, a podcast dedicated to business and personal branding for the aesthetic industry. The essence of trust and rapport are the foundations of building a successful, sustainable, long-term business. Interviewing thought leaders and experts that have built successful personal brands, we share their stories and how they got to be where they are, plus sharing practical advice and actionable tips for you to implement today into your own personal and business branding. Today, Nicole speaks with Alyssa O'Keefe. She is a nurse practitioner and a health industry pioneer, a highly experienced clinician and educator, and was the first nurse practitioner in the ACT. Alyssa, I'm going to introduce you, introduce you, I should say, Adjunct Associate Professor Alyssa O'Keefe, and you are also an RN and a nurse practitioner. You are considered a... um, Health industry pioneer. I love that. It sounds so wonderful. Um, And you are a pioneer. You are the first nurse practitioner in the ACT. You are a highly, obviously, experienced clinician and educator. Um, You have an honorary appointment as um, adjunct associate professor at the University of Canberra. Yeah. In the Faculty of Health and... um, and is an affiliate of the Synergy Nursing and Midwifery Research Centre. You have done so many things that I could literally read for the next, like, five or ten minutes. I know. Don't bore anyone, will you? Um, well, it's fantastic. I think, I think I've got very well-contained ADHD. Wow. Well, you're also the um, inaugural chair of the Australian College of Nursing, Cosmetic Nursing Community of Interest. Yeah. Now, Nicole, I just stepped down from that. So Robin Curran's taken over that, that position because I had to let something go. Surprise, <laughs> surprise. So I was, did that for two years. So I've just stepped back from that one. So I'm the past chair of that. And you um, were a contributor for the Bible on skin rejuvenation. Yes, Slow Aging Guide to Skin Rejuvenation. Yes, yes. And I've also just written a chapter with Robin Curran um, for a nurse, uh, an undergraduate nursing textbook on cosmetic and aesthetic nursing that oh. gets published in September. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, and pretty cool. You obviously, you just mentioned that you did it with somebody. Something else that is um, incredible about you is you seem to be able to collaborate and work with everybody in this industry, which uh, not a lot of people can do or can um, claim that accolade. <laughs> I think because from the beginning we decided to be Switzerland. You know, we got um, we got approached by a whole a whole lot of organisations for exclusivity and for kickbacks, and we chose not to accept any of them. So. And the fact that we don't sell devices as well has kept us very, very much Switzerland. Yeah. Yes. That's yeah. fantastic. And something that's really important to your brand. Indeed. Yes. Yeah. Which so, is- yeah, that neutrality and the ability to, you know, when we do recommend uh, devices for people, we're, we're recommending customer service and clinical team really more than anything. Yeah. Yeah. And this is something I'd love to talk to you about. So I've, I've written it down here, Bravura. Yeah, it's Bravura. 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 Oh, see, Bravura. Unless you're Italian. So someone like Trish Hammond, 
just rolls it off her tongue because she speaks Italian. It's an Italian word, yeah. um, but it's bravura. Yeah. That's, oh, that's the Aussie. That's the Aussie way to say it. If you're Italian, it's like bravo! No, no, I can't do that. Oh, that's so fantastic. So, how did it come about that you started this um, educational business, and and why? What was what drove you to start the journey? What drove me to start the journey for Bravura was I had had held a number of positions. Um, in high-level high nursing positions, including one in a professional organisation. And I was looking for a bit of a change. And so I moved. I'd always had a passion for skin. So I moved to work in skin. I had a, I've got a strong background of terrible acne, terrible acne scarring, you know, complex pigmentation. Always had a passion for skin. So I was feeling like I needed a change back from the professional arena back into the clinical arena. So I went and worked in a skincare clinic in Canberra called Clear Complexions with a, a well-known registered nurse, Susie Hoytink, who, you know, talking about rock stars of the community, she most certainly is one. And, you know, she welcomed, welcomed me with open arms. So I spent four years uh, working with Susie as a clinical nurse consultant for the uh, number of clinics that she had and absolutely loved it. Um, after about four years... Um, so, you know, some personal things that happened. My sister had been diagnosed with breast cancer at quite a young age. And after I'd been in the skin industry for about four or five years, my two other sisters, my two sisters, there's three of us. So my sister that had breast cancer, myself and my middle sister, the three of us had made a decision that when she reached her five-year um, survival landmark, that we were going to go to Africa together. And we'd been there before, but we thought we're going to go again and we're going to go and we're going to celebrate life. And so that was a really nice juxtaposition for me and it created a lovely space. So what I did is I resigned from my position um, with Susie and went to Africa and went on safari nine times. And while I was in Africa, I just had all of this opportunity to sit back and be grateful and have some reflection time and, and just think about what, 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 what was important, what came next, where was I going to put my energy? Because my career has been incredibly complex and I've been just given so many opportunities over time, Nicole. I've had the ability to work, you know, in everything from paediatrics to surgical to, uh, you know, an STI and HIV project in Papua New Guinea and professional organisations, industrial organisations, pioneer nurse practitioner and I just thought what is it I'd really like to do next and I, I knew that I wanted to do something quite creative and I knew I had to play on my strengths so how that evolved was you know sitting there under super moons in the middle of Uganda having a, a nice tall beer their stubbies come in 500 mils over there so sitting there and I just got thinking about you know, what my two strong suits were and they were clinical practice and education and how I might implement those. So I thought, you know what, I think when I go back, I'm going to come back to Australia, I'm going to develop up my own, my own college, my own school. So I spent a lot of time investigating how that might look, whether we might become a registered training organisation, whether we wouldn't, who we would collaborate with, what it would look like. And the first iteration of Bravura was called Laser Safety Australia because all I had in the beginning was a learning management system with two small laser courses on it. I had no website, no landing page, no anything. But what I had was some people that really wanted to collaborate with me and really believed in me. In me. 
of which one of those groups was the Australasian College of Cosmetic Surgery. And so I started um, the whole business, like the landing page was the, the entry point into the learning management system to do a course. And it's grown from there. About a year and a half into the journey, I realised that Laser Safety Australia and the colours that we had, which were yellow and black, great safety colours, but I realised that it was kind of getting lost lost in you know all of the other safety laser kind of in the environment a little bit a little bit invisible so i i decided that we needed to rebrand and call ourselves something different and i knew that we needed to look a bit different so i worked with the most amazing uh, brand developer here in canberra and he put all of these ideas to me and when he talked about the name bravura it was the only thing he proposed that gave me goosebumps Bravura means masterly, superb, excellent in Italian. It's actually um, a musical term. And so when he, when he proposed it to me, I just went, oh, wow, I think this is something that we can grow into. And I knew that Bravura was going to be so much more than just laser safety training. And look, as you, as you know now, Nicole, we've you know, developed injectables courses. We've got um, medical grade skincare, peels, um, skin tightening, you name it, we've just developed a suite that's way beyond laser safety anymore. And so it really, really just literally happened over a, a 500 mil stubby in the middle of Uganda with me going, how do I want to spend the next five to 10 years of my life? And honestly, I've had no regrets ever since. It's just gone from strength to strength. That's so amazing. It's such an amazing story. And, um, Throughout this journey, you have also done the first Australian Standards and Scope of Practice document. Yes, look, that was such an interesting experience. And I did that in collaboration with the ACCS as well, because we were uh, looking at developing and, and refining the, um, the curriculum that they have for the Diploma of Cosmetic Nursing in the college. And it became evident during that journey that we didn't have anything to benchmark nursing practice against, that we could, we could understand how the curriculum was performing. Um, the other thing that happened at about the same time um, I started thinking about writing the standards and scopes of practice was that the first ever nurse practitioner in New South Wales um, with, uh, with regard to cosmetic nursing was busily trying to get ARPA registration but couldn't find any Australian evidence to support what she wanted to do. So in the literature at the time, the only um, journal article that existed on cosmetic nursing in Australia was one that Susie Hoytink and I had written in the Australian Nursing and Midwifery Journal, which is a fantastic journal, but it's not peer reviewed. But it was the only thing in the Australian landscape to support cosmetic nursing as a unique area of practice. So, um, so I got thinking and I thought what we actually need is something that is much more robust, much more rigorous to support what it is that we do as nurses. Um, cosmetic nursing is still very much in its infancy professional, very well developed clinically, but very much in its infancy uh, academically. Um, so I thought it would be probably prudent to start to develop a story about what we do. So that was the genesis of the standards and scopes of practice. 
And that document outlined, you know, some of the common things that we understand about professional practice. So it talks about telehealth conferences and cosmeceuticals and prescriptions, um, confidentiality, infection control. So some of those core things that we they, that we know well as nurses. But then it started to expand on what types of things it is that we do. So everything from injectables to chemical peels to cosmeceuticals to the whole whole scope of what we do. So that was that was developed by I led that team to, to write it and I worked with a fantastic group of other nurses. And then the second part of that was we published it in the international literature. And so that was the first time and it's the only time that cosmetic nursing appears uh, cosmetic nursing in Australia appears in the international literature. So an extremely good foundational um, document. It's five years old this year, and it's very ready for some rejuvenation. So I'm quite excited about some of the nursing organisations, particularly the Australian College of Nursing has a cosmetic nursing community of interest that's headed up by Robin Curran currently. I'm really excited for them to take it to the next step. So what I would love to see them do with it is give it a good refresh, make sure it's still contemporary. And then we've got a little bit of work to do to be recognised as a specialty in Australia. It's it's very difficult and nurses um, don't have a, a very big voice when it comes to, you know, a seat at the table politically uh, against, you know, some of the other huge organisations in this industry. And um, there's always uh, an argument, I guess, and a, a tug of war in this industry, I find, between people having a commercial interest and, of course, um, you know, having that, that research foundation and... Um, patient interest and I, I assume that you didn't get paid millions of dollars to do this that it was a, a lot of a passion that drove you <laughs> <laughs> so much passion drives me every day Nicole look I think that's really interesting I've um I've done a lot of work with government um you know as you said in your introduction I um I, I was fundamental in developing nurse practitioners in the Australian landscape. So I was the first one in the ACT, and I was the first sexual health nurse practitioner in Australia. So I've sat at a lot of tables with a lot of bureaucrats, a lot of politicians, and a lot of um, other organisations like the AMA, the Division of General Practice, etc. My biggest takeaway from changing the landscape and having more of a voice has been, after all these years, is published. And what happens with nurses is they do this amazing work. They do this amazing clinical work and don't document it. They do this amazing academic work as part of their um, postgraduate studies, but never publish it. So, and I think there's a shyness about nurses actually, you know, sticking their neck out and, and claiming some of the space. Because what I found when I was dealing in those forums, you know, you know I sat around a table to develop the Medicare numbers for nurse practitioners back in the day. And, and what, what they want from us is, is some evidence. We, they, it's not enough for us to say to them, this is how it is. They need to see it in the peer-reviewed literature. And so if I was to say anything about having a voice in this landscape, I would say to the nurses, and, I, and anyone who's spoken to me about this, Nicole, would say, yes, Alyssa, we've heard it before. If you've got an assignment that you did well in in your postgraduate studies, please have a think about publishing it. And it doesn't necessarily have to be in the peer-reviewed literature. My first publication was in a newsletter for the Australian Sexual Health Nurses Association. And it was, it was something like a day in the life of a sexual health nurse. 
And so I started off just with little baby steps. And, you know, as I said in the introduction, I've just written a chapter with Robin Curran about cosmetic nursing in Australia for an undergraduate textbook, which was one of the hardest things I've ever done. It was like creating a whole new person. Um, but just starting to make what we do visible because we actually don't have a body of knowledge about what we do. We know what we do and we know we do it really well. But if we had to show a portfolio of evidence, uh, we don't have it. Mm, that would be that would be my message around that. I don't think we're as voiceless um, as we think we are. I think we're just not using our opportunities to have a voice in a clever way. Mm, absolutely. And I think there's so many... Um, silent people even Susie I know Susie I know everything she's done and I um approached her at an NSS conference and said oh hello my name's Nicole Montgomery and congratulations on the Telstra Businesswoman's Awards and whatnot and she was just like as if I was talking to the wrong person she was in so much shock she's so I humble yes her or knew all these things about her you know where did you come from um <laughs> And, and I think that it's, you're, you're right. How important do you believe it is to actually tell people what your credentials are and your achievements? I think it's absolutely essential that you do that. And I think it's important that you don't call yourself something that you're not either. Like you can come up with a whole lot of fancy pants terms, but let's just call you what you are because that's enough to be proud of. So I, I see lots of... Um, posts on social media, you know, can I call myself an advanced nurse injector? Can I call myself a, an advanced laser technician therapist? You know, you can call yourself whatever you like, but at the end of the day, you're a registered nurse or a nurse practitioner, you know, own, own that and make the patients, you know, make the patients aware that they're seeing a highly skilled and highly educated registered nurse. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And um, how important do you believe it is and for yourself included, to have ongoing education and to invest in ongoing um, education? Oh, look, sometimes I wonder if I've spent more on my education than I've earned. <laughs> <laughs> look, it's the, it's the best investment you'll ever make and I never, ever seem to stop learning. Um, every time I think I'm at the pinnacle of what I want to know, um, I, I realise how much I don't know. There's a great saying, you know, the more you know, the more you realise that you don't know. And so it absolutely never stops. So, look, I hear about nurses who say, oh, my goodness, I need to get my 10 hours CPD. I sometimes think, oh, my goodness, how am I going to document my 10,000 hours of CPD? Um, I'm learning all the time. It's absolutely essential. Um, in the introduction, I talked about how we investigated whether Bravura would become an RTO or we would sit outside of that, that structure. The primary reason we made not to become an RTO was because we wanted to have the flexibility to be able to change our curriculum in real time. And so what I'm always doing is I'm always scouring the literature. I'm always, you know, listening, listening to our podcasts, watching webinars to make sure that we're on the edge all the time of what we're delivering with regard to education. Um, that wasn't able to happen if we were to become an RTO because every time you change your curriculum by a certain percentage, you have to resubmit and there's a really long process to get your, um, your curriculum approved. And if I, if I did that, I'd be getting my curriculum approved every two months, I would say, because things change so much. New clinical papers are out, new things are happening, resources. So that was the reason we decided not to do that and very much sit in that postgraduate space, particularly for doctors and nurses, 
but you know our clientele are everybody from somebody who wants to start up their own hair removal business in western sydney through to barber shops that want to implement laser hair removal into their barber shops through to you know plastic surgeons with multiple clinics chains and everything in between so you know we welcome everybody that wants to learn because you never stop do you you don't no, no, absolutely not. And um, with that and with obviously everything that's happened with COVID, there is a lot of information out there and it's very difficult, um, especially for people who aren't scholars, to, um, you know, to try and differentiate between what is reliable and what isn't. Have what you is to implement new um, training and do you see a change in the future of training, training in regards to infection control? Look, I think infection control is done. I'll, I might divide up infection control and um, laser-generated airborne contaminants because I think they're both really important things to talk about. Um, one of the things that um, Queensland and Western Australia do very well is, and I'll just talk about laser for the moment, is have as a minimum requirement some sort of health and hygiene or infection control qualification in order to get your laser license. I think that's absolutely essential. I think that's been done incredibly well. What COVID-19 has done for us has given us the gift of a mandatory education for the whole of the population, the whole of the industry around infection control. It makes me so happy that influenza numbers are down. I would say our foodborne virus, our foodborne illness is right down as well. So the entire population has got a crash course in infection control, haven't they? So I think that's incredibly important. Um, in the future, I would be incredibly happy to see infection control built into everybody's curriculum that wants to do um, laser or any type of aesthetic practice. Uh, we've got an infection control course in the pipeline. It's just sitting with the program advisory committee at the moment. Once that's done, it'll go for um, through the endorsement process. So we've, we've developed an infection control course that's um, absolutely specific to cosmetic medicine, which is fabulous. And we can even write COVID-19 into it now because it'll be so contemporary. It'll be, you know, the, the infection control course of the new pandemic. So Absolutely. we've got that sitting sitting in the wings ready to, uh, to come along. The other thing that's really important about what's going on in this landscape too is um, laser-generated airborne contaminants or plume has been very much brushed under the carpet across the sector. We know that when you um, do even something as straightforward as laser hair removal, we've got some sort of um, bioaerosol coming into, um, we're coming into contact with it. Not a lot of clinics uh, um, out there are abiding by the national standards with regard to the evacuation of plume. We know things like it's mandatory to have an evacuator. The nozzle of the evacuator needs to be two centimetres or less from the site of generating the plume. We also know that we need to have a filter associated with that evacuator. So eva an evacuator is like a fancy vacuum cleaner, essentially. But it can it can um, filter out down to 0.1 of a micrometer, so it can it can filter out viral particles. Because when we heat up tissue, our human tissue, um, and we rupture the cells, or we or we have um, um, a, a degradation of the hairs, all sorts of small particles are released, and they're released into the air, and they can go into our lungs. So we do need to be wearing masks as well for these treatments. So within this plume is things like hydrocarbons, acrolyne, benzene, um, viral particles, um, what's, that's probably a good enough example, all things that you really don't want to be breathing in 
for example, one square centimetre of tissue ablated by a CO2 laser is the equivalent carcinogen properties of smoking six cigarettes. So there's a whole lot of people out there in our industry who for a number of years have been breathing in all of this already. What COVID-19 has done now is made us sit up and take a bit of notice and go, oh, hang on. So these standards aren't just for fun, they're actually protecting our health and safety because we don't know what COVID-19, you know, what it's going to do if we breathe in particles um, from, you know, treating someone's around their mouth or um, their snoring or even their hair removal. We don't really understand, you know, how that virus works yet. So COVID-19 has, as I said, it's been a huge crash course in workplace health and safety. Mm. Absolutely. Wow. Um, that is so interesting. I actually didn't understand, um, I didn't understand um, what plume, the, the risks of plume. You've made it sound so simple. Oh, thank you. That's, that's the joy of being a teacher. You can, you can break it down. Yeah, look, plume's absolutely fascinating. Um, there's a really good study done in Ohio of 777 um, operating room nurses. The, it was done by uh, Professor Kay Ball out of Ohio. And one of the, the main reason that she was doing her study was to look at compliance of using evacuators in the operating theatres. But a subsection of her, um, her study was uh, the general health of the nurses that were working in the operating theatres. And they had significantly higher prevalence of bronchitis and chest infections compared to the general population in the US. So a lot of nurses and a lot of therapists that are using these devices without evacuators, they're getting things like sore eyes, headaches, chest tightness, nausea, general flu-like symptoms. And it can be from breathing in that plume rather than from being on their feet all day and being exhausted. Another thing I might just take the opportunity to mention, and, I, and, and it's, quite, it's theoretical, but I've been thinking about this for a really long time, there's different levels at which uh, particles and viruses, etc., are filtered out in our body. So big particles are filtered out by the hairs at the top. Um, everything else kind of gets captured on the mucus as you go down and your, your immune system comes to, to essentially engulf it. But we do know that uh, viral particles can lodge in the bottom of the lungs. So COVID-19, particles of COVID-19, it's possible that that can happen. But the other thing that I've been thinking about a lot is the carbon facial. So there is a lot of people doing carbon facials and exploding those carbon um, um, molecules, uh, carbon pieces into smaller pieces as part of a treatment. I just wonder if people aren't using sufficient personal protective equipment when they're doing carbon facials and adequate um, um, evacuation of that plume. I just wonder if we're going to see something like coal miners lung for some therapists in the future. I just I have quite a concern about that because I think there's a lot of people doing those treatments with without taking any precautions. That's somebody's PhD right there. Mm. That is so interesting and so true. I see it all the time on Instagram. You mm. know, the, the boomerangs and the videos because it is such a, a visual treatment. It's spectacular to watch, isn't it? Mm. Quite yeah. mesmerizing. It's a little bit like watching tattoo removal. It's like I could sit and watch that all day. <laughs> those little gas bubbles coming up it's like oh I love that I absolutely love it but yeah I think it'd make a very interesting longitudinal study mm. Mm. and I'm yeah. not sure if you saw there was an article of a lady in Queensland um, just recently in one of the mainstream um, 
publications and um, she had been burnt on her legs from laser. Do you think that the community actually have an understanding of the importance of education, what the, the benchmarks would be or, um, you know, who is educated and practising with all of the precautions and who isn't? I think the information's out there, but I'm not really sure that some parts of the community are driven by quality. I think a lot of the community might be driven by um, convenience and cost. And I do think um, quite often the, uh, the community members get sold a package. So one of my daughter's friends came to me a number of years ago and she bought a package and she's, her second um, treatment, she got burnt. It was under um, hair removal and she got quite badly burnt. And I said, you need to go back and complain. And there was, so there was a few things there. She bought a pack of 10. She'd only used two. She never went back and used the other eight because she didn't trust them anymore. She wasn't um, um, empowered enough to go and make a complaint. I think a lot of people aren't empowered to make complaints. And this is across the board, empowering consumers to make complaints because they're often judged as, well, you, you were doing something for your vanity. This isn't, you know, it's not as if your heart bypass has gone wrong. Um, you, you're just vain and you deserve it. So there's a bit of a sense of, of that with consumers as well. Um, I'm really impressed with the Arpanza uh, providers and consumers information that they've released. They've just updated that again recently. So there's two... Um, FAQs, one for providers and one for consumers. Um, my recommendation, and I've written a blog about this, is for therapists to have the consumer FAQ on their website or easily available um, to the consumer. So it talks about things like minimum education, test patching to ensure that the settings are right and that it suits your skin. Um, informed consent would be the other thing, um, you know, making a complaint, how to choose a good, a good um, a good um, practitioner. So there, there, there are resources out there if we implement them properly. But um, I do think sometimes that the consumers aren't, aren't, aren't really empowered and don't even have a central place, Nicole, to be able to make a complaint. Um, you know, we have no national register for something like this. And the TGA, whilst um, a lot of these adverse outcomes should make their way to the TGA. I don't think there's a particular easy pathway for the consumer to navigate to make to make that complaint. Hmm. No, I completely agree. And um, I, um, I think it was the end of 2017, maybe the beginning of 2018, but the um, medical board changed the guidelines for a labiaplasty which obviously is quite an intimate procedure that not a lot of people talk about. Um, and you were no longer allowed to do it in clinic, the procedure. Mm -hmm. You had to do it in a, in a registered day facility or, you mm -hmm. know, a day hospital or whatnot. Um, however, there is a loophole that if you're using a laser to do a labia reduction, then you're, it's, 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 it's somehow a grey area as to whether or not it's a surgical procedure because you're not actually using a scalpel on the on the skin. Wow, isn't that interesting? So, Yet you're using a knife made of light. Same principle, well, different tool. Yes, and I How interesting. Know this until um, a very young girl contacted me. When I say very young, 19, but to me that's very young. Um, and because she hadn't told her parents, you know, because it was a, a non surgical procedure in a non surgical beauty clinic, uh, she perceived it to be very safe. And I truly didn't know where to tell her to go, apart from APRA. But when she did go to APRA, she came back saying, well, you know, it's actually 
I didn't have a labiaplasty. I had a, you know, a, a reduction. A laser reduction of the labia. Yeah, so How interesting. What was the outcome for her? She, oh my gosh, she didn't have the confidence to do anything. She was never going to go back to the clinic and say anything or show anyone or, um, but she actually ended up um, seeing a specialist plastic surgeon to have um, skin taken from elsewhere because she was in a lot of pain. But for somebody very young with no, um, you know, being a uni student, being, you know, um, only just entering the workforce, um, you know, it was, it was terribly upsetting and I felt very powerless because, I mean, how embarrassing and how awful to be in, in physical pain and it becomes a medical issue because she had um, no labia. Mm. Look, I've just put my hand up with a group called Pair Australia to be on the education committee for them. And one of the things that they're looking at, in particular um, for laser and other light-based therapies, is having a register for people um, to, for two different registers actually, one register for clinicians so that they can be recognised as having a certain set of standards that they adhere to and a certain level of education. But they're also looking at becoming a central place for adverse outcomes as well for laser and light therapies. Um, and then that would be a, a perfect example of something that um, would, would, would benefit from both of those things. One of those things would be being able to, for that young woman to be able to choose a clinician based on, um, you know, at least adequate education, being a healthcare provider, um, and then be having somewhere to, to, to put that complaint, whether or not it's to put that complaint in there to progress it, but even just to record it to see if we've got something systemic going on. Um, Laser really concerns me in that intimate space as well. I have um, great concerns about uh, laser vaginal therapy and radiotherapy being done by um, non-registered health professionals. And the reason I have an issue with this is um, because of things like um, a trigger after a sexual assault when you have an a, a intimate genital examination and being able to identify infection and sexually transmitted infections um, so I've had a number of conversations and always take every opportunity that I can to express my concern about those procedures being done by non-APRA registered health professionals. Yes. Absolutely. Such a great point. And I think that that would be incredible if there was some sort of, um, you know, national reporting. And I truly don't believe we have any comprehension of what's happening in the smaller country towns, you know, in rural Australia where there are limited clinics, there are limited practitioners uh, and therapists, uh, surgeons, uh, you know, come in and come out. They don't, they're not there permanently. And, um, and that's a really scary thought because, yes, the number can, can balloon, but you don't know. So No, you wouldn't know, would you? And I just think there's probably some, you know, not even in regional or remote areas. I think mm. some of the small clusters of non-English-speaking communities, I'm not sure that we're really aware of what might be going on there either. Yes. Absolutely. No, I, I completely agree. Um, so moving on, you are a philanthropist and, <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, personally, when I do go to the shop and buy something like my, you know, thank you, hand wash or whatnot, I do prefer yep. buying a product that I know, um, yep. social conscience. When you decided to um, support Bush Heritage, which I'd love for you to tell us about, did you um, consider it as a business decision that you wanted to show the world that, you know, I have a, a social conscience and the, the business um, Bravura does have a social yep. conscience. 
or was it something that you already did and just continued? Yeah, look, look, that is such a great question. Um, I think all corporations should have a social conscience. And so I can't imagine having a business where we didn't support one or more um, charities. Um, personally, we support a couple. I'm very much about prevention. So one of the charities that I support personally is a, a foundation called the Pathways Foundation. It's for young men and women who are on the cusp of adolescence and it's a rite of passage um, program for them. And so what, what they do is the men and the young men and the young women, they go on camp with a parent or a, or a, a parent substitute and they learn about who they are. They get to discuss um, sex with other adults. They get to talk about drug use, confidence, periods, friendships, bullying, you name it. So, so I've, I've always been very strongly engaged in, um, in supporting the community. And, and I very much have a prevention uh, framework and, and that's why I love Pathways personally. Um, so when it came to choosing one for Bravura, I thought, well, it has to be something that's uniquely Australian because that's what we are and we're really proud of that. Um, and then I, then I looked around and I went, well, what, what is it that takes the things that I'm passionate about to their, not to their lowest common, common denominator, but takes it back to the essence? And the essence for me was country. And I know in my heart, and Florence Nightingale, she wrote about that, this in her notes on nursing, it's all about environment. And so if we can get our environment right, then human health follows. So originally we had sponsored both um, the Red Cross and Bush Heritage Australia, but I came to a place where I went, you know what, I'm just going to double what we put, I'm just going to take it from the Red Cross, I'm going to double what I put into Bush Heritage. And then the other thing I did with the bushfires as, is we donated money for every single student we'd ever had enrolled as a lump sum to Bush Heritage as well after the bushfires to give them a bit of a kick start. So I'm really passionate about that cause and they make a huge difference. They've rehabilitated so much land. And yeah, at the end of the day, if the land's healthy, so are the humans, fix the waterways, rebuild the forests, and our physical and mental health will improve. Mm. That's so fantastic. Wow. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. I'm always giving away bits of money. So this morning at the traffic lights, I gave $5 to, um, to the hungry people because I was, it's, it's, was minus 3.5 in Canberra this morning. So when I was out and about, there's these young kids standing at the traffic lights in this freezing cold with buckets to, to collect money to feed the homeless. How can you say no? And then a couple of weeks ago, I gave $20 to the homeless guy outside the supermarket and I just got chatting to him. And look, he was such a complex human. And our, um, our conversation just developed and he told me how he was really worried about a friend of his a, a woman in her, I think he said late 40s, he told me her name, he was really worried she had died the previous week and he was really worried because he thought it was an intimate partner murder and no one had reported it and he said, I don't know what to do and I said, you know what, I said, if I don't do anything else today, I'm going to go home and I'm going to go into Crime Stoppers and I'm going to report that just in case nobody's looked at it because he was powerless, he had this information, he was really distressed and I thought, well, you know, let's just do something small. So I put in a report to Crime Stoppers for him and look, who knows, maybe it was a heart attack, maybe it was intimate partner violence. 
we've just got to do little acts of kindness all the time. And I think that's something that COVID-19 is really teaching us as well, is looking after our vulnerable, is looking beyond our own selves, acting as a community. All of the countries in, a, in the world that are doing well with COVID-19 are the ones that have a really strong sense of community and understand the greater good. And it's never been more evident in this last week about whether countries who are all about the individual do well or not. Um, so yeah, look, I am a philanthropist. I, I think everybody is. We all do little things like this all the time. It's it's not something that you brag about or talk about either. But I think it's important that we do talk talk about those little things that we do because when other people hear it, it, it might just prompt someone next time they see they see that opportunity that they'll just you know dip their hand in their their pocket or stop and talk to somebody. Yeah, yeah. I could, I could talk to anybody. That's my one of my other great strengths, Nicole, is I'm very good at talking to all sorts of people. I've done a lot of work with marginalised communities over time, a lot of work with um, Aboriginal communities, prisoners, sex workers, um, HIV-positive people, IV drug users. So I just, I just really love people. Mm. You are the epitome of a nurse. <laughs> Everything people imagine and put on a pedestal of uh, a nurse. You really are. God love you. Don't put me on a pedestal. It's a long way to fall. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is so fantastic. You know, thank you so much for, for being you and taking the time. And I don't think that you're just a great talker. I think you're a really great listener. Oh, thank you. Thank if you. If you weren't, you wouldn't get something out of all of these interactions you've had and you wouldn't keep doing what you do well it's hard to sit back and shut your mouth too sometimes I've, I've had to practice that I've had to learn to listen and it's amazing how much you do learn and how much you pick up good and bad but yeah I've had to practice it mm. oh, I'm so I'm constantly trying to stop myself and, and listen I always talk over people and just always have so much to say it's, it's so very do I <laughs> <laughs> and I can, and I sometimes I sit there and I'm, and I'm going saying to myself, shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up, going right, no, sh 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 just because it's not about me, it's about listening to that person. And you don't know where it's going to go, and you just get such valuable gems from people. Mm. Well, this has been an incredible, valuable gem. Thank you so much for talking to me today. Nicole, thank you so much. Do you have a business or personal branding question that you'd like answered by one of our expert guests? Send an email with your question to nicole at trustedsurgeons.com.au.